0: hello there. My guest today is Dr. Larry Sen. I've been meaning to get Larry on the show for a long time though, so it's great that he he finally agreed and uh, really, really pleased to have Larry on the show today. But before we we bring Larry on the screen, let me share a little bit of information about Larry with you. I've got a few slides that have been prepared just for this. Dr. Larry Sen is chairman and founder of Sen Delaney, the culture-shaping group within Hydric Consulting, which is a global consultancy firm. Larry has been called the father of corporate culture. He's worked with C-suite leaders, helping to helping them shape uh, culture and performance improvement within their organization. And Larry's worked with over 100 of the world's top 1,000 firms. Larry has written eight books, two on leadership, three on corporate culture, including the bestseller, Winning Teams, Winning Cultures, and three on human peak performance, including the bestseller, the Mood Elevator, Living Life at Your Best. Larry has received the Thought Leader on Trust America Award in 2019, and he has a Bachelor of Science in Engineering and an MBA in Systems from the University of California, Los Angeles. And he's got a Doctor of Business and Organizational Behavior from the University of Southern California. Now, if you didn't think that was enough, he has two of his passions in life, our family and fitness, and he has five children. Two of them were professional athletes, and Larry has six grandchildren. And this is the one that's going to be a real interesting one. Larry ran his first sprint triathlon at the age of 70, and he has run over 60 since then. He is undefeated in his age group. What a remarkable achievement. So without further ado, let me introduce you to my guest, Dr. Larry Sen. Larry, how are you? Nice to see you.
1: I'm great. I'm great. So greetings to the world from Sunset Beach, California, where I am at this time. So I'm delighted to be here with you, Sonny, and all your guests.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on the show. And I know that you've got probably much better weather there than we have here at the
1: moment. I'm afraid so. (laughs) I can tell you out front. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, look, Larry. I, as I said, I, I've been meaning to get you on the show for a while, and um, I'm going to talk to you about all sorts of things, including the the book, the the Mood Elevator. But let me start off with something I said in the introduction there, which is I introduce you as uh, your
1: type, the father of corporate culture. So, what's the story behind that? Well, it's a fascinating one because you never know where you're going to end up in life. I had no idea I'd end up spending much of my life on corporate culture, but I came out of the university as you saw with an engineering degree and an MBA, and with a professor and a kid named Jim Delaney, started a traditional performance improvement firm, working on quality, performance, productivity in organizations. And I quickly discovered that it was easier to decide on change than it was to get people to change. And that most organizations were like dysfunctional families. They had trust issues, they had turf issues, they had resistance to change. And it didn't matter how good the idea was, you couldn't always implement it. Now I got my my big epiphany when I was we were asked, Delaney and I had done some work on supply chain and retailing. We were asked by a guy named Sam, a little town called Bentonville, at a small regional company called Walmart, to come in and and he had this passion, this vision of bringing low-cost goods to rural America. He was going to do that by taking all the costs out of the supply chain from manufactured customer that have his happy box with the greeter. And he was like an evangelist for that purpose. And we joined a dream team. I've never been in like anything before or since because they were collaborative, open to change, willing to try things, purposeful, nobody was selfish. And we just reinvented the industry. About the same time we were asked to do the same thing for a company out of the UK called Woolworth. And, uh, and I, I would fly from Bentonville, Arkansas to New York City to go to Woolworth and I'd go to this meeting and be in this room with a it was like a bunch of old men sitting around a table, <laughs> and it seemed like their only purpose was to maintain the status quo. And I said to myself, "Oh my God, you know that little company is <laughs> going to take over the world, and they did. They did the, the world, and this company is going to die, and it essentially did in America anyway."
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: so I said to myself, "You know, there's something they didn't teach me in school." They both are the same kind of companies. They both are trying to do the same things. We tried to implement the same programs. One failed abysmally and one created history. What's that about? It seems like companies like people have a personality. So I found a professor at USC had written a paper called Readings in Organizational Character. The fact that organizations like people develop very definable characters And I went to him, I said, Dr. Wolf, I got to understand this. He says, well, people have talked about it. No one's ever studied it. What if we paid your way through the doctoral program? And that began what became the world's first research. And this will date me, because this is in the 60s, (laughs) on corporate culture. And I published my dissertation, 1969, as the world's first systematic study of organizational culture. I then said, okay, I got to figure out a way to create cultures. So it took me another nine years of working on learning methodologies and processes and systems, and then I launched uh, in 1978 the world's first culture shaping firm, uh, Sandelani.
0: San Delaney. So that,
1: That's what we've done ever since, and work with uh, you know over a hundred of the CEO teams and the Fortune 1,000 companies. So it, it's been a fascinating ride, and and it just uh, and today culture has. Uh, there's an author. Malcolm Gladwell who wrote the book Tipping Point of course and he said that uh, we've reached the tipping point in culture that uh, his his quote in the blog was i've become convinced that culture is the greatest determinant of the future of an organization so all of a sudden it is a hot topic out there but mm. uh, we who are in the change business can't ignore the habits of organizations get the way so that's mm. the story
0: mm. of where- Wow, you've got you got a, quite a quite deep roots in this, then, haven't you? Going back to the sixties, and was that around the time of Deming? Then, I guess, and uh, all the organizational behavior stuff from then.
1: Yes, uh, all that was going on then. Then we went through the age of reengineering. In fact, one of the books is called "Reengineering Corporate Culture," and and uh, so this is really a anyone who's trying to change anything is going to run into the habits that exist. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, and if you, you ignore those at your peril, we call it the jaws of culture. No matter what you try to put through the jaws, if you have dysfunctions, they're going to slow you down. And everybody who's on this call knows that they've, they've tried to do something that made sense that failed. Mm-hmm. And what got yeah. them was the culture.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, we've got quite a few people
0: on the show already. I just want to uh, do a few shout-outs already. Jorge's on the show from Mexico. Hi, Jorge. Nice to see you. Uh, Charlie's on the show. Charlie's in Riyadh. Nice to see you, Charlie. Uh, And Jeanette's on the show. Jeanette, love to see you. Charlie, Jorge, and uh, uh, Jeanette are on the stream team. So when you mentioned dream team there, I was thinking about the stream team. So there you go. Some similarities there. And we've got Samuel on the show. Hi, everyone. Now... Before I've got, I've got tons of questions for you, and I've got. I want to just start it in a piecemeal approach. Sure. When you When you think about sort of culture, then and implementation, song what are the common barriers? Now I know you've given me a slide for this. so I'll put the slide up. Uh, Is the accountability slide? Can I put the slide? Up? No,
1: hang on a second. I'll, I'll yeah. call for that if I could. Sure. Uh, so uh, let's actually get people. I love audience participation. Okay. Okay. So could everybody just Cross your arms. Just cross your arms and just get as comfortable as you can get so that feels really comfortable, okay? Right. Now, I'd like you to cross your arms the other way. Okay. And and how does that feel? Weird. (laughs) Put your arms down. Now, cross them again as fast as you can. And how did you do it? That's interesting. I went back
0: to the last position I was in.
1: Which you didn't even know
0: you did. No, I didn't. No, it was like an autonomic reaction.
1: So the biggest thing is the human tendency to resist change. We all have these unconscious habits. Mm. Right? We, have, we have physical habits. We have thought habits. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to change those thought habits. And so the notion of just resistance to change, how do you get people to be curiosity, curious versus judgmental about new ideas? If you can do that, mm. then you can, that makes a huge role. So resistance to change is one of them. The other one we've got a slide on, I think, yeah. that's the accountability ladder. Shall I put that up, Larry? Yeah, why don't you do that? That'd be fun.
0: Okay, here we go.
1: Yeah. There you go, right. um, So it's an interesting tool because what happens, uh, the challenge is when you're below the line. So whenever someone tries to implement something and it doesn't work well, what do they do? Well, they blame others. (laughs) So it's Mm -hmm. not my fault. It's not my department. It's somebody else's. They make excuses, you know, the, the dog ate the homework, but they make excuses. We, we don't have enough budget. We don't have the right talent, blah, blah, blah. Or they're in wait and hope. Don't worry, it'll be better next quarter, which it isn't. <laughs> and yeah, so, yeah. so getting people to really acknowledge reality in the change world. We really, you know, our quality is not right. Our safety is not right. Our performance is not right. And and, and it's up to us, we have to own it. We then, if we, if we can acknowledge reality and own it, then they find solutions to get out of it. So I would suggest that anytime you're stuck hmm. in a change initiative that's not moving forward, you're stuck at one of the unaccountable, powerless levels. And what you gotta do is start with that crossover, get people to acknowledge the reality. No, we, we, our safety record in the hospital is not good enough. No, our nuclear plant is not rated the right way. So whatever the heck it is, then you can begin to get people to own it and not blame others and then they'll find solutions then they'll make it happen does that make sense yeah it does so what you're saying is that
0: you've got to find out where you are on the ladder i guess haven't you and then exactly. if you've got something that you really want to do establish where you're on the ladder and then whichever direction it moves in that gives you the success i hate to use the word failure or failure i guess doesn't it? Is that
1: that is that is that really what this is about the slide it is and overall we would say that uh a third of an organization's energy, maybe a half in some cases, is burned up in those lower levels. Right, it's burned up in those lower levels. Then there's one other area that they're burned up that ties into this, and that is, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. And that is, uh, we often complain about things we can't do anything about <laughs> in an organization. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. bitching and moaning about the regulators or somebody else or corporate or something. Not that we can things we can't necessarily change. And so we've given that a name that, that our clients use and they say, well, where are we in the accountability ladder and are we talking about a gravity issue? Now, why do we say gravity? Well, when's the last time you got up in the morning and said, oh my God, another day with gravity. <laughs> <laughs> you pro- why, did, why don't you complain about gravity? Cause you can't do anything about it. Well, why do we spend hours complaining about things we can't do anything about? <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's interesting. The gravity one is interesting because uh, one of my sort of mentors in the past is a guy called Trevor Klett, and he made he made this joke, which is um, you know when you have accidents and in, in incidents on it, and, and said, "Well, are you going to blame gravity for falling down the stairs?" You know, I thought <laughs> I thought it was a classic one. But I, I, I like the ladder. I mean, uh, from my experience of having been in industry, there is there is a tendency for a lot of the blame culture and blaming others. But does that come from insecurity then? Is it because people don't like to think that they're wrong? Well,
1: you know, we talked about habits in the arm cross. We all have thought habits, okay? So one very powerful thought habit, for example, is we learn throughout our early life is, for me to win, somebody else has to lose. It's Mm. the win-lose mindset. But we have other thought habits. One of them is belief that if I'm a leader or a manager or an important person, I'm not supposed to make any mistakes. Right. I'm supposed to get it right. So, what happens if I have a belief that I'm not supposed to make mistakes and then something doesn't work? I have to blame somebody. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. have to have an excuse. So, you know, just think about it. Anybody who comes in to see you and they're behind on a project and they're or they're behind budget and you ask them what's going on, what will they tell you? Well, in order to protect, to cover their ass, they'll Give you all the reasons. I'll give you all the excuses. Now, what you need to do is say, okay, I understand that, but what more can you do? Mm -hmm. So you have to untrain it. And so they come the second time. I understand that, but what more can you do? By about the fifth time, they'll come in and tell you something they can do. And so we have to untrain this blame culture
0: the blame but the habit loop. Um, now, while people are on the on the on the side here chatting, uh, hi Russell, uh, Jay, nice to see you. Think of questions for uh, Larry as well. I mean, we've got years and years of experience there. When you think about uh, uh, culture and human, you know, big performance for humans. And so on a question for you, Larry, and I don't normally like to talk about this subject. You know, that that dreaded pandemic, which is COVID nineteen, but. Do you think then with the accountability ladder in mind, we're seeing a shift in terms of people's attitudes more recently? Are they getting more more human? Yes. They- Two things.
1: So here's what's happening. So when I first did my research on culture, the question was, how do you change habits of adults? How do you do that? And all the normal models of defining things and reinforcing them don't work. So what I found was an early social scientist guy named Kurt Lewin Who believed in the notion that said when we're young we're like a flowing river and then we freeze and his belief was unless you had unfreezing, unless you had some aha moments, unless Mm. you had epiphanies, you wouldn't change. You think about people in life, uh, somebody who doesn't take care of themselves, then they have a heart attack. All of a sudden they're walking around the block and they're eating greens because they had an epiphany. Okay, My epiphany was I had my latest child when I was 65 years old. And you think that changed my life? Hell yes. Okay. So what does it have to do with this? Well, um, the COVID has been an unfreezing moment for most organizations. There, I was talking to a CEO this morning. He said, you know, we, when we had to go to work at home, we had 400 employees that didn't have laptops. And he said, "We got them, them within, we got them to them within 10 days. He said, that would have taken us six months before to do that. And we said to ourselves, why the hell do we take six months to do things when we can do them in 10 days? And so this whole notion of, this has upended people's visions or view of what's possible. And we hope we don't lose that. So two things have happened. One is organizations are more agile and they're more willing to try things and do things they weren't before. And they're faster in doing that. Secondly, leaders, at least in good organizations, have, have had to become more human more vulnerable, more transparent and in doing that. And so these are things we don't want to lose because we want organizations that are more transparent, that are more human. We want organizations that are more agile. And and that only happened because we got a smack on the side of the head. And that's the whole core of how Sandalini transforms cultures is we create a, a training module called an insight-based learning model, just like our little arm cross. Instead of explaining stuff, we get people to do things that puts them on knee jerk and gets them to say, well, why, why do I do that? <laughs> and should so, I do that?
0: Sorry, Larry, I cut across you there. So am I right then in thinking that organizations always talked about working smart, but now they're actually growing a conscience as well? Is that, is that now starting to happen and take shape with leaders and, and the
1: C-suite people that you're working with? Yes, when you think about it, there's less hierarchy in Zoom or WebEx or team meetings. And so we are becoming less hierarchical to some extent. We're becoming less boss-driven to an extent. We're becoming more agile, a bit a bit less bureaucratic. Many companies are, not all, but many are. And that's those are all elements in a healthier, higher-performing culture. Okay. So, I mean, the label on the box here is this
0: corporate culture and peak human performance. So when, it, when we talk about culture then – Culture is a very interesting topic, and we've had quite a few shows on this. Um, culture is very different across the world, uh, especially when you go from, say, the Asian side to the U.S. side and everything in between. Th- how does that fit in on the accountability ladder? I mean, if I just flick that screen back up again, um, do you find then that culture is a driver in that as well?
1: Let me address it more broadly. Um, mm. We've worked in over 50 countries. Everybody you mentioned this morning, wherever they were, we've done culture work. Hmm. Now, the interesting thing is this. There are some, there's, what we found is there's more commonality than difference. In other words, every society in every country, we'd be better off being accountable versus being victims. In every society, we'd be better off being open to change and curious than being judgmental. And so, so the way we define culture, the way the father of corporate culture defines culture, is it's the way people behave and work together. The way people behave, are they accountable or are they victims? Are they collaborative or are they territorial? Do they resist change or are they open to change? Are they curious or judgmental? So it's very definable, and we, we help companies define that. And, uh, and those things, we have our materials in 11 languages, but it's the exact same concepts it's the exact same training and i've done it myself in china germany ireland mexico and and people react all the same way now what is different is style so people are less likely to share openly in asia they're more willing they're more willing to share in a pair maybe uh, right. they're, and they're uh i mean there is a style to someone who uh, to someone in in different cu- countries of the world but that's stylistic it's not the core of the of the way we define culture which is behaviorally
0: so that's fascinating yeah. so what you're saying is culture in essence is the same across the world but it's the style that is different correct okay correct. Um, I want to pick on a couple of questions, if I may, Larry. Sorry to deviate from the slide. We'll come back to it. No, but that's fine. Because I, I know you love to interact with people. So let me get this question up from Vince, okay? Uh, okay? Vince is a regular on the show. So this is a good, interesting question he asks, which is, we have a habit in the world of killing workers at a rate of 2.3 million every year, and it's rising. How does Dr. Larry change that deadly habit? What comes next to stop the killing? That's a good question, Larry.
1: Education of leaders, so of the top leaders. So here's the deal. The central finding of my doctoral dissertation is the common phenomenon that exists out there, a term I coined called shadow of the leaders, okay? Uh, shadow of the leaders. I mean, I won't get political, you can see a shadow of a leader in America right now, which is terrible, I'm <laughs> sorry. But, but shadow of the leader, okay? And so as as, as CEOs and senior teams go, that tends to move down an organization. So as we get more humanistic, as we get more, as we better understand, I think there's an understanding that hard works the answer. No, the understanding is healthy cultures with people who are engaged, who are inspired, who have purpose. Those are the organizations that are gonna do best. Uh, those are the organizations where people thrive in. And so we have, um, many of our clients have the highest Engagement scores, the highest employee satisfaction scores, and the highest performance. And so the belief that I can have healthy, high performing—that's why we always put those together: healthy, high. Right now we have healthy, sometimes high performing short term, but it almost always catches up with them. You burn out enough people, you kill enough people, and so it's a, it's an it's a vacuum in leadership. And that's why we shoot to work for CEOs as much as we can. So start at the top. And, right
0: okay um that's a good answer uh, vince i hope that sort of did it for you you've not come back to us ping back to us on a chat a uh, question from jay vicario he says hi dr larry could this be
1: down to a generation shift i think that's playing a role i mean given i've got kids i have children range in age from <laughs> from t- uh, my son who's 20 in college to my oldest son is 55 so i've and i've got grandkids that are two years old to 20 years old. So I see the generations, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, and yes, um, one of the things we found is that there is this huge void in people feeling appreciated and valued in organizations. And that's showing up even more so for the younger generations, because in my generation, to work hard was its own reward. I didn't expect to get thanked for that. That, that's, that doesn't work. Yeah. And uh, people don't feel appreciated and valued, they're gonna leave you if they can. They're not, they're not gonna give you all their, uh, all their effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will hold back. And so we need to face it from the pandemic standpoint, we need to face it from the generational standpoint, we need to just face it from the humanity standpoint to create healthier organizations. And you do that by creating cultures which respect people, which include are inclusive, which are accountable, but they're also appreciative. Uh, all those things.
0: I mean, I guess what you, I guess it's a good point you've raised there. Because in the olden days, I mean, I'm going back to when I first started. We used to think of when you joined a company, you joined for life. You know, it's a bit of a like being in a family. So you create the family values, and 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 you say, well, my family, my tribe, and you have that sort of. Pride and belonging, but as years have gone by, you, people tend to migrate from job to job, and they call it a three-year rich don't they? So yes. after three years, they want to move on and get bigger money and so on. So, I, am I right in thinking that what you're saying there is that 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 longevity in a job isn't like it used to be, and so as a result of that, it's eroded some of this um, uh, culture, some of this uh, positive behaviors and so on.
1: Yeah, and that quote, old culture was not always the best. It was nice sometimes. It was polite. But in the Midwest United States, we talk about Midwest polite. I will smile at your face but not tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that nowadays, but we won't go there. <laughs> and, and, and that's not healthy. You want more openness, more transparency, everybody's voice to be heard. Uh, and that was not the way it was. It was speak when spoken to. Uh, follow the hierarchy, you know, respect your elders, all that BS. You know? <laughs> Forget that. <laughs> um,
0: D- Derek's coming in with a question. Derek, nice to see you. Thank you for joining us. This is, hi, Larry. In relation to owning it, what's the biggest influences for encouraging empowerment in teams?
1: Mm. It's an interesting thing. I'll tell you a real quick story. We were mm. hired at the time a divester in the phone industry to Helped form what is today Verizon out of oh, yes very Found, big I mean, Bell Atlantic and Nine X became Verizon and and uh, we helped put them on the map. Now when we got there, they were incredibly entitled, and they and they wanted people to be more empowered. So they tried to empower people, but then when people say you don't give me enough money to be empowered, you don't give me enough tools, to be enough. so they became bigger victims. We said no. The path to empowerment is training in accountability. Plus appreciating people for doing the right thing, mm. listening to people, including people, inspiring people. So it's not by trying to, you know, you can't give empowerment away. Mm. You have to create an environment where I feel I'm heard, where I feel I count, I'm important, where I'll be listened to to make that happen. Uh, where, where someone is going to coach me There's a huge need for coaches, not bosses out there. And so if you do those things, you'll have an empowered organization. If you say we're going to empower you, you're going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Uh, um, interesting you mentioned Bell Atlantic there, because Bell Atlantic was the pre-Silicon Valley was the hub, wasn't it, in terms it of knowledge and creativity yeah. and so on. Um, so I hope, uh, Derek, that answered your question. Give us a ping back if we haven't. But, um so Vince has come back on your response. This is good answer. Fiduciary duty, the pursuit of profit at any cost overrides of positive efforts. Many c suiteers are moving on trying the value method as distinct from the profit at any cost method. I think he's just saying a statement there that I think we, okay, we sort of chime with, don't we, uh, I guess, Larry?
1: Yes, but the good news is this, uh, at least in the U.S., the Conference Board of CEOs, uh, this, this august body, who since Milton Freeman decades ago said the purpose of organizations profit rejected that and said, no, the, the primary purpose of corporations is not profit, it's societal good. They need to be healthy to do that. But there's a there's a there's definitely a change going on. Uh, and we're in the midst of that right now. What caused that change? I think the old system was becoming untenable. <laughs> I, I think that here's the difference. Uh, When you have to move a whole lot faster, when you have to be more agile, when things are changing more quickly, you can't have this old bureaucratic, hierarchical, do what I'm told kind of culture. You're not going to keep up. Mm. Uh, You have to have something different because just the rate of change. Demands of people, demands of of people coming up. Sorry, Larry, I cut across you there.
0: So it's really to try and get away from the dictatorial aspects of you will do as you're told and a bit more creating belonging, belonging cues and acceptability and um, creating a family. Yes. Yes. Um, So Jeanette's saying, I like your quote, culture is the enabler of all initiatives. What are the main enablers
1: of a positive
0: culture? Uh, Now, this might bring us
1: nicely. (laughs) So, so, there are some essential dimensions in a culture, okay, uh, and things you need to have. One of them is, um, in addition to the behaviors in a culture, any organization can have a higher purpose, a noble cause, our work in children's hospitals. Or there's, there's a, uh, a, a company called USAA here in the United States, an insurance company that has the highest customer loyalty in America. And, and their theme is, we're serving people who are serving us because they're serving military families. Okay, so having purpose one thing. Another thing bedrock, the, purpose, the the performance value is accountability. But then there, but then you got to have collaboration, which is essentially decisions for the greater good. But then you have to have openness to change, innovation, and creativity. But Then you need to support that with positive spirit, and people feeling appreciated and valued. And then you have to have the bedrock of honesty and integrity. So there's, there's a few of the core elements in a positive but high-performing culture. I hope that helps Dr. Janet.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, so we're going to cover that in a bit more about when we talk about performance, peak human performance as well, I guess. Um, uh, We've got a question. I think this is Jay. I'm not sure, and forgive me if it's not Jay, but he says, I appreciate the variables you said with regards to change. However, I personally think some culture change programs are put on a facade, e.g. DNI, seems to be a hot, or diversity and inclusion seems to be a hot topic, but do company owners
1: actually mean it? Hmm. I think they do at this point at the intellectual level. Right. Okay. I don't think, I think there are many, and I, I actually do think, I mean, I uh, wrote a paper with one of our other partners at Hydric on, uh, let's make this moment the moment. Uh, let's make this moment the moment. There are a lot of things going on now. Let's really get serious about this notion of an in, of in inclusion and inclusiveness uh, to make that happen. But I do think that um, while it may, it may or may not be a facade, I think it's a fairly superficial mm. approach most people are taking because these beliefs that are in people are really very deep, unconscious, unknown mm. bias that we have. Mm. And unless you can get to that, deeper level within people, you really don't make big inroads there. Now, we believe we've got the way to do that is through what we call our unfreezing learning. We, we can truly make measurable changes in, in, in things like inclusion or any of the cultural behaviors, but you can't do it by lecturing it. You can't do it by, you know, making, you know scaring people. You can't do it by any of those things that are being done out there now. That doesn't get it.
0: Mm mm-hmm. I've got I've got a couple of questions on that, but let me just bring in some of the other questions. And then if we've got time, we'll yeah. go back to mine. It's more important to get the uh, the live chatters uh, questions in. So that was, I think, Jay, Derek's come back saying, thank you. That was great. Your response earlier on. Uh, Alan saying recognition, appreciation, the biggest motivator, far greater than reward, in my opinion. To me, this is an interesting. agree. Oh,
1: yeah, You're right on, Alan.
0: Yeah, we had an interesting. We've got a little WhatsApp group, and I noticed on the WhatsApp group they were asking questions like, "What incentives should I put on my, on my co- with my company to encourage improvements?" On so, we had this carrot and stick sort of opinion. You know. when you think about recognition, appreciation, have you come across with all the experience you've got anything that companies have done which you think that's fantastic? You know, that really works in terms of getting that tribal movement, getting that ownership. What's your experience?
1: Well, it's interesting, a uh, little company, a client of ours called Yum Brands. They have 1.7 million employees in, in 50 countries around the world, run by a guy named, we're run by a guy named David Novak, who was CEO of the year, yeah. who had uh, 10 years of 11% uh, earnings growth, okay? And when I first met him, when he first took over, um, um, first assignment to run, actually, KFC, then the whole place. He said, Larry, if you can give me a recognition culture, I can change the world here. Give me a recognition culture. And so the, the problem is that most people see it as a program. The most important recognition people get is from their boss, is for someone above them. Uh, that's If you can't get to the point where you have people providing appreciative feedback and constructive feedback, mm-hmm. both them and developing them, it's really hard to get there through any Mechanical mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, well, I agree with Alan. You do need to, in a culture, our cultural model, align re, or align everything with your culture. So we have clients that actually part of part of pay is how well they're living the values. It's not just the numbers. And so uh, many of our clients are that way. So there is. It, it does make sense to align them, but don't expect that the rewards themselves are going to pull the performance. It's going to be. You know, I'm really excited because I got recognized in front of my peers by my boss and he he noticed what I did. He thanked me for this. And I'm on track. And he gave me a great tip over here. That's where it comes in.
0: Very good. Um, Derek saying team of teams. I guess he's following on from some conversations earlier on. We've got a very busy chat, uh, Larry. You, 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 you've, you've stirred the hornet's nest here, okay? So Vince Butler says, look at the work of Anand Giridharadas. I don't know who that is, but things aren't quite what they seem. The business roundtable won't commit to stop damaging lobbying. I won't stop monopoly practices. Sorry, won't stop monopoly practices, won't stop tax dodging. Again,
1: yes. Hmm. Yes. There is, well, there has been some progress by the conference board and at least recognizing that profit's not totally the king you're right i mean there still is a long way to go there that, that mm-hmm. uh, there are monopoly practices there's lobbying yeah. too bad yeah. yeah charlie's saying
0: post-covid is a challenge now for organizational culture millions of workers with zoom fatigue <laughs> and want to get back to their desk versus those that are happy and settled working from home this is going to be a real conscience battle isn't it as we start to come out of this uh, metamorphosis out of it like a butterfly
1: yes yeah, so i in my conversation this morning with another ceo he talked about the the three groups those that are going to come back to work those are going to be a, a work at home those going to be a hybrid and so that's going to go on and most it's going to be a readjustment in in that whole thing there and actually the data i've seen most recently says that people who have been at home have uh actually 47 percent have some degree of uh of mental health challenges. Mm. Those back at work, 27% have. So it seems like there's an even bigger toll. While some people like it, this whole idea of trying to manage your kids and their school and work from home, and, and it's, it's tough. Day rolls into night, night into day. Uh, there's not the separations we need. So it's, it's a crazy, mm. crazy time. And there is, there is fatigue, there is Zoom fatigue. Mm. So you gotta have more lively Zoom to begin with. <laughs> and uh and uh and those are curious so we're doing a lot of work with clients now just to bring the spirit back people yeah urges down spirits down you got to bring something to reignite them That's yeah part of our work right now
0: yeah i mean these shows that we do hopefully add a little bit of an extra dimension than watching the same old rubbish on netflix uh, i mean certainly with the superb guests like you with the experience that you've got Um, I've got another question here, and I think this, yeah, this is Jay. He says, well, Dr. Larry, thank you for a great and honest answer. Um, I know Jay reasonably well, and I I can tell you he, he certainly did resonate with that. Charlie says versus okay, that's going back to our conversation. Now, I, I'm not sure if Nasik is the person that was on the WhatsApp group today when we we're talking about cash rewards and incentives. He says why cash reward is not a good idea to motivate the workers. Now, I've got my own experience on this, but I want to hear from you, Larry. Why is it? Why do you think it's not a good idea?
1: I wouldn't say it's not a not a good idea. What I'd say was if you think that's going to get you all the way, it's not. If you if you if you just have a cash reward and you have supervisors who are jerks <laughs> never thank anybody nobody ever gets appreciated it's not going to be sustainable yeah it, it, it's like you know it's like with a lawnmower you can push it or you can have a power lawnmower you know cash rewards are like pushing a lawnmower you stop pushing you don't get the grass cut
0: yeah yeah a
1: solar powered electric one <laughs>
0: yeah um i mean I, I don't want to talk about my experience in detail but my experience it very quickly is the fact that it started off well and it went all pear-shaped because it became like an Oliver Twist uh, scenario you know please sir can i have some more or you know is that all do i not get a bigger reward anything that's cash driven tends to bring out a little bit more of the darker side i think of of people's desires and needs and that's that was my experience
1: of it and it becomes an entitlement yes you
0: exactly entitle. exactly
1: you just it then and then you're in trouble
0: you yeah yeah it. Derek's come back saying sorry when he did the team versus teams thing he pressed it too quickly so sorry I pressed send before finishing my message hey <laughs> good job you got the gremlins and not me this time thank you <laughs> says, I remember reading team of teams and the big emphasis on trust any good suggestions and experience of building trust Larry
1: wow I mean, I, I should be able to answer this given i was named thought leader and trust in america and in- there you go you're on this spot now in 2019 okay so um openness begets trust okay openness begets trust if i want to build i build trust i tend to build trusting relationships because i'm very open you already know how many kids i have <laughs> you could probably figure out how old i am I mean, I mean a lot of stuff i'm sharing okay and and so if if we want to build trust, we need to be open in organizations. We need to be more transparent. That's why transparency is helping make it happen. Leaders need to be more vulnerable. Mm. Vulnerable is a big thing. We, we tend not, if you're not vulnerable, you will not build trust. Mm. And so there are, there are key of a, a series of, and then you always have to keep your word. So this combination of being vulnerable, being open, being consistent, true to your word, dependable, All that comes together in this trust formula that's just such a powerful foundation for any team. We're working with the CEO Panera right now, and new CEO. And uh, the first thing we did instead of work on culture was work on trust building within his team. Mm -hmm. We built a whole series of dynamics around that Mm -hmm. because we wanted to build a trusted team before we took on the organization.
0: Yeah, I, I'm. I'm so happy you mentioned the word that is always in my mind, especially having reading some books recently about vulnerability. I think I've I've now come to believe that if you show your vulnerability, it's not a weakness. It actually builds trust with individuals if shown in the right way, in the right context. It actually says, "Look, we're safe. You're safe. I'm safe. We all have these issues. We have all vulnerabilities, but that actually builds trust." Uh, is is the message that I'm getting? Um, so now. As I said, busy chat. Here we go. Vin says, uh, problem solving. No philanthropy solves the big problems. The solutions to really big problems and issues must be stupid, systematic, transformative, universal, public, institutional, democratic. So I think he's doing the acronym on stupid there.
1: Well, I certainly agree with the systematic and trans and transformative. I mean, mm. that's, that, that's the answer to, to to big to big problems and. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's why I've devoted my life to a systematic transformation process for cultures and been able to prove you can do that if you follow the right principles. And mm-hmm. uh, But it, it isn't – and most people, it's just a uh, – it's a series of disconnected initiatives. Mm-hmm. It's not a systematic transformational model.
0: Yeah. I mean, we started to talk more about transformational now as opposed to transactional, which is, right. which is uh, I suppose, a good positive move. Uh, Jeanette Jeanette says, thank you. Leadership is a core element of any business, any successful business, any insight
1: on leading and leadership. Um, I think I mean, I really a big fan of some of Simon Sinek's work on the why. Mm. Leaders need to lead with the why more often instead of the what Mm. And, and at all levels, why we're doing this, why it makes a difference, why it's important, why you're important to me. And uh, they also should lead with purpose whenever they can talk about the benefits, which is another version of the why mm-hmm. and have a noble cause. Uh, but, but beyond that, I think that to me, the, the foundation of leadership is what I call values-based leadership, leaders who are themselves cast a shadow of being accountable, collaborative, open to change, yes. positive yes. spirit, uh, integrity, those things I mentioned. It's the leaders need to, need to model those things in the organization. Wonderful.
0: So Jay's come back. Dr. Larry, uh, a question which I feel may not be 100 percent relevant, but how does the ego factor fit into culture? I wish there was more courses on people with power to manage their ego to help develop a balanced organization. I don't know if such a course exists.
1: Big topic, but I think that. once again, it's shadow of the leader. If the leaders are all humble and they, they, they've got some element of servant leadership and if they're vulnerable, if they're building trust, then ego won't be a factor. Show me a company with a CEO with a big ego. Show me a country with a leader with a big ego and I'll show you problems mm. because the ego factor. And I've got to say, you know, I've talked to my wife the other day, you know, I, I want to keep growing my whole life. I'm, I'm 85 years young, but I'm going to keep growing my whole life and uh and i i still have to work at times on my ego and set it aside but i'm very conscious of it popping up it's like (laughs) whack-a-mole i have to knock it back down again so (laughs) so we all have these egos but we need to keep them in check you know just uh humility Um, a
0: little little bit of ego is good because it gives you that that fire in the belly doesn't it? it gives you that get up and go as well but not too much there's probably a fine balance i guess
1: i'd say confidence and intention Ah, and it's purpose, not, it's I guess. Not, it's, not, it's not for my gratification. It's, it's, it's that I know I can do it. I'm clear I'm going to do it. I'm going to be accountable to do it. I've got an intention to do it. Hmm. And, hmm. And, and I'm confident I can do it.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So Derek says, thanks again, Larry. You, you uh, helped him out with that one. Uh, Gary says, hi, Dr. Uh, Larry. Have you used this recognized behavior change model to try and change culture and or management input into safety? If yes, which one and what was the measurements? Now we're probably touching on this peak human performance thing as well.
1: Well, two two quick examples. One was we were hired by the largest utility in America, is the Tennessee Valley Authority. Mm. Serves six states, has six nuclear plants. When we got there, five of the nuclear plants were on the watch list. That was they're in trouble. But by the time we left there, applying some of these concepts you're talking about here. All of them were in po one rated, top rated, most safe in the world. A plant, I uh, got a picture of a plant in Romania of uh, a, lar- a very large global manufacturer. Uh, and it's the highest quality and highest safety plant in the world. Now, they're all wearing T-shirts that on it say, and then I'll tell you what it means, on their T-shirt in English and Romanian, it says- Be here say, now. Be here now, okay. So let me ask, have you ever been with a person they were not there? Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever been been with a person you were not there? Yeah. Have you? (laughs) Right. Have you ever been in a meeting and nobody was there? Okay. So be here now is being present. So what they're wearing these things that said be present. Most accidents cause because of people not being present. Okay. In fact, as we train, we can actually reduce uh, suits in hospitals from doctors by teaching them be here now. To live a more present moment existence, so one of the one of the elements in safety, is is being aware and present, not wandering mind. That's just one. The other is the other interesting one in, in the Tennessee Valley is people would not speak up. So because of hierarchy, people people almost always see things. If you look at if you do a a post mortem on an incident, somebody knew something and didn't say it. Why didn't they say it? Because of the culture. So you have to have a culture which is inclusive and invites input from people or you will not have a safe culture. You will not mm-hmm. have a safe hospital if the nurses won't question the doctor, uh, a plant if someone won't, if, a, if a worker won't speak up. So that's, you know, in a nutshell, that's part of my view of this and why culture is critical in safety and in health.
0: What well, you're saying to me it makes quite a lot of sense, because if you think about the situation now, what, what we're in, When you talk about be here now, we're not always, although we'd like to be here now, our mind is going to drift, you know, it's going to drift into the normal rubbish that's happening out there. So when you start talking about building trust and belonging and all of those things, it's more important to have that now because they will be the driving forces to make people be here now, feel like a part of the family. Correct. Correct. Okay, so that, that's a good thing to bear in mind as we start to migrate and go back into our, our cubbyholes and our uh, open plan offices and various other things as well. Um, Vince says, problem solving, no, f-. okay, we've done that one. Uh, Vince says, billionaire and corporate philanthropy philanthropy is attempting to replace democracy. Okay, that'll, that'll, that'll be a big conversation piece in itself. We'll leave that one. Um, Jeanette says, uh thank you for that response there so we've got quite a lot of chats going on there and some really good questions uh we're 49 minutes into it and i don't want to let you go without talking to you about (laughs) (laughs) apologies amazon were that quick delivering this only arrived a couple of days ago i want to read it but from what i've read bits of it it's a fascinating book can you tell us a little bit more about it
1: yes so the basic premise is this is that uh As as we all come into the world, we do have a best. We all have a best self. Think about yourself. Uh, There are times when you're top of your game, world's looking good, answers are flowing. There are other times where you can't tie your shoes. (laughs) So what is that all about? So every minute of every day, we live somewhere along this thing I call the mood elevator. The highest level is probably gratitude, and I have my own my gratitude journal I use every night. Uh, we're, We're wise and insightful. We're creative. We're resourceful. We're hopeful, optimistic we were flexible, adaptive. Okay. Then we drop down to being impatient, irritated, bothered, defensive, judgmental, self-righteous, angry, hostile, low mm. depressed. Okay. Mm. So everybody recognize this is the human condition. Mm. So, but what if there was a button you could push? Mm. Here's the deal. Where will you have better? Where will you be here now more in the higher, or lower states? Where will you be more collaborative? Where will you be more accountable? Where will you have positive spirit? Where will you be more grateful? Where will you appreciate people more? There's nothing you can put out there that you don't do quite well in mm-hmm. the higher states and you do miserably. So let me ask people a question. How many, have you ever said something to a loved one you wish you could take back and mm-hmm. maybe got you in trouble? Okay. Everybody's done. Where were you in the mood, elder when you did that?
0: Oh, pretty shitty.
1: <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Sorry about my language. <laughs> because your thinking's unreliable. So my wife and I have this amazing uh, relationship and we, we made this deal that we would not take on any issues if we are in the lower floor of the mood elevator. So something might happen, you wanna talk about it? No, let's talk about it later. We finally talk about it later when we're both up here. It's just a kind of a, by the way, gee, I didn't know. And it's and it's gone, but here's the thing. Uh, where does this come from? Well, uh, quick story, so this, this guy was told before he left work that they were gonna shut down his, his uh, division of the business. And he didn't wanna go home to scare his wife, so he sat in the park and he first got really depressed about maybe losing his house, his kid's not going to the university, et cetera. But then he said, wait a minute, this guy's always starting rumors and they're never true. So next he went to, oh, it's okay. Then he went and said, well, wait a minute, I hate this job. <laughs> if they fired me, maybe I'd get a package, I could start my dog grooming business. And then he says, well, wait a minute. And then he gets all excited and really uh, optimistic. And then he sees a kid walk by and says, why am I sitting here on the bench? When I go home, my son's going to say, I love you, dad. And he becomes grateful. So how did he move from depressed to excited and grateful? Where'd that come from? His thinking. So our thinking creates our experience of life. And our thinking is always unreliable in the lower mood states. Mm. And yet we act on it. So, if we can, so the the key to this is um, when somebody does something you don't like, if you can go to curious versus defensive, judgmental, self righteous, you can have a better relationship. If Mm -hmm. something happens to you in life and you can say, why did that happen to me? What can I learn from that versus going down to low and depressed? You can have Mm -hmm. a better life. Mm -hmm. So, learning to ride this thing, and there are tips to riding this thing, is just a it's a life changer. I mean, I, I can talk to people 15 years after they went through the seminar we taught this. They'll, be, they'll start talking about the mood elevator and how it's changed their life.
0: I rode the mood elevator last year. Um, just very quickly, pre-2020, 2019, when I started these shows, I was very much driven by statistics, you know, how much people are following me, how many YouTube subscribers, how many this, that and so on. And it used to depress the hell out of me because no matter how much effort I put in, I found myself more at the bottom, the bottom end. You know, I always felt I was off my game. And then last year, towards the end of last year, I found Guy, uh, which is all about uh, find something that you love doing. You know, it's what the world needs if so you can get paid for it and you know, become good at it. I found my mood start to go in the other direction. In other words, I was grateful for doing this, very grateful for meeting, you know, very talented people like yourself, having the chats. So for me, the mood elevator makes a lot of sense. However you want to package it, whichever pigeonhole you put it in, Ikigai or something else, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs and so on. But, yeah, um, and I think you've actually made a big impact on Vince because he says, Dr. Larry, your contribution is valued, respected, appreciated such a wonderful sense, balance, proportionality. This has been an exceptional hour of my life. Thanks for that,
1: Vince. Love you, man. Love yeah. you, man.
0: <laughs> big, big respect there because you know uh, Vince's Vince's a, a pretty. Um, very cerebrally orientated and a tough individual to win over. For you to have done that, you've obviously made some significant... I've I've personally enjoyed this session with you so far, and I've got tons of questions, and I know I won't get them in. Um, but let me let me bring Jorge's point in. Jorge from Mexico says, the nuclear industry have a safety model with strong standards and surveillances. Why do you think uh, there are safety culture differences between the plants that you were talking
1: about? Hmm. It, it's interesting. Those seven plants each had seven different leaders, and we were able to actually measure the culture in the plants and their reliability levels and correlate them. And so this notion of shadow of the leader is a really important thing. The, the leadership model in each plant was a little bit different. The culture was just slightly different. And so that's why we see these differences. Yeah. Um, and
0: uh, Jay, Jay says that mood meter needs to be used for marriage counseling.
1: <laughs> uh, it, I, I, it, it is, uh, in fact, it, a uh-huh. CEO I know has a retreat for, for uh couples and he uses the mood elevator <laughs> <in> that, So
0: <laughs> are there any um when we stitch the when we join up all the bits and pieces and we talk about corporate culture and peak human performance, let's just have a quick recap then. When we talk about culture, we've already established the fact that culture from your experience is not different across the world, but the style is different. Is that right? Yes. And when we talk about peak human performance and we talk about human performance, whether it's at a personal level, at a corporate level, at a personal level, the mood elevator could be a good, a good sort of benchmark to ask yourself, where are you? What are you doing? Whether you use ikigai or whatever, you use the mood elevation, say, well, look, I'm feeling very grateful. Uh, I'm feeling like this. And it will give you, it will draw your line as to where you are. And then the next step is, I guess, to try and improve that in terms of getting peak performance. Is that a fair
1: comment? It is. It is. If there's one thing that guides you like a dashboard, we're working with Aptiv, the making smart cars around the world, it's uh, pay attention to your state of mind and mood. In fact, if, if, if anybody can send me an email, I'll send you a copy of, them, of a mood elevator that you can put up by your desk. I really? got my back wall behind me. That blue chart's a mood elevator.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 think it, I think it's certainly going to be very helpful because – it might be something you want to put on your fridge with a magnet, and when you come down in the morning and you're, and you're feeling all grouchy, just say, "Where am I on this mood elevator?" With all this pandemic uh, stuff going on, as well, um, are there any are there any sort of closing thoughts from you then? Because one of the things I'm mindful of is you've got a ton of experience, and you work with some incredible C-suite leaders, governments, uh, all sorts of high-profile people. What, what would you see? What would you say is a top tip that you could give or top? tips that you could give when it comes to peak performance?
1: You know, I, I think at this point in history for each of us, it's it maybe sounds strange to be a bit more of a point of light in the world. That is, if we ourselves can be healthy, despite what's going on around us, if we ourselves can and it's a we, you will fall down sometimes. But if you do, don't do no damage. See, Eli Lilly says, I can't always be up the mood, out of the air, but I can learn to do no damage. If you can learn to do no damage. Uh, about that, by knowing you're in a bad place and not taking it out on people. If you can work on yourself, and, and the tips for doing that are one is take care of yourself physically better because we catch colds, because we have our immune systems are impaired when we run down. We catch moods when we run down. If we don't get sleep, if we don't eat right, if we don't exercise, we run down. So, tip number one is take care of yourself. Tip number two is be grateful for life. You know, uh, notice the things you appreciate. Uh, and then, and tip number 3 is really be, be be kinder to others you know have your ambitions have all those things but be more compassionate be more understanding uh, mm-hmm. be, be one of the people that, that be a better coach be mm-hmm. aware of the shadow
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: you're casting so and if, and if yeah. I may just
0: add a couple more things which you told us about which is uh, don't be afraid to show your vulnerability that builds trust and above all be here now now
1: and don't be yeah. a
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, now one thing I want to say, Cody, is thank you for your email, Johnson at for the mood elevator. May I say that uh, Larry is always open to be connecting on LinkedIn? Um, and yes, if you right. can, just yep, connect yep. with Larry yep. directly and uh, ask him for the, uh, the little uh, chart. Um, and if you can, if you want Larry, you can send it to me and I'll put it on the website. People can download it, whichever works. At the end of the day, get it. If it works for you, use it. It'll do you a lot of good. Uh, Vince says, "Shadow the leader, very profound. It determines if people live or die, literally." And Jeanette says, "Dr. Larry, I hope it's not your last show with Red Risks. I'm looking forward for more meetings." Well, really, Larry, you're in the driving seat because you're a very busy, even even you're 85 years young, but you know you you have the energy of a 15 year old. So. Please do join us if you can. And just to say, Coyote says, thanks, Dr. Larry, for your depth and insight. It's really been an insightful session for me, especially practicing HR in an environment of people where personal interest is valued above the common good of all. What I want to do, Larry, is I want to get you back on the show and I want to sort of explore some things with you on various aspects. Maybe we can do the... the uh, Yeah. yeah uh you know what that means and also we can try a couple of other things as well but you're a very very busy individual i know you also support companies in the uk but will you come back on the show for us sometime in the future
1: i'd love to sure all right
0: well all i can say is thank you everybody uh the hour is up thank you everybody for joining us today really enjoyed the show with dr larry sen i um, humbled to have been in the presence of such a, a man, a myth, a legend. Um, and I will be back on Tuesday, but not on camera. Jeanette is hosting it. And we're going to have a show with Louise Hosking on, guess what, Larry? Human Capital. So that, that is going to be an interesting session. Larry, please stay on after the show ends. Just want to catch up with you with the, some loose ends. Everybody, take care. Thank you. All the best. Stay well. Stay safe. Be good. Bye for now. Thank you so much for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed that show. Now, I mentioned we have two shows a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. The Tuesday show is at 7 p.m. in the evening and the Thursday show is at three o'clock in the afternoon UK time. If you missed the show, we always upload our recordings to our YouTube channel, Red Risks. Subscribe and I can also notify you of any upcoming events. One way or another, we will make sure that we keep in touch with you.